0: You have a Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to look to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Book of Romans, chapter 6. And uh, as you know, we have a baptism this morning. And uh, as early in the week as I can remember, uh, this scripture came to my mind. And uh, so I've been feeling the need to preach on baptism since uh, the beginning of the week. And so I told Sister Marley this morning that she needs to pay attention today. Uh, Especially her, but of course uh, for all of us. So um, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6 and we're going to read the first 10 verses. Now all 23 verses are, are connected here and I was very hesitant to break them apart, but there is so much contained in this 6th chapter. And though it is around a common theme, um, I just wanted to cut it off at verse 10 and focus on um, the main thoughts in the first 10 verses today. So, um, Romans chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 10. It says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? And that'll conclude our reading this morning. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And the title of our message this morning is very simple. It's The Importance of Baptism. The Importance of Baptism. And I want to tell you, to begin this morning, a little story. Um, When I was about 18, I had a friend from high school. She was a freshman in college, and I was a senior in high school. And uh, we still stayed kind of distantly connected. And Uh, a sister church was in revival services and I knew she lived in that area and so I called her and I said hey you want to go to go to church tonight I think it was a Thursday or a Friday night and she agreed to go and uh, so we kind of made acquaintance again and took her to church and um, she had proclaimed to be saved but really wasn't living that way her freshman year of college and um, as we drove back to uh, the place she was staying uh, I began to talk to her about the incompatibility of the way she was living, and she proclaimed to be saved, and then, you know, going to church and and so forth. And um, here's what she said. She said, you know, what I have thought here lately was, I already know I'm going to heaven. So if I go have some fun, I'm still going to heaven. And I think you can get the gist of what she was saying. Basically, who cares about serving the Lord for this period of time in my life? I just want to have fun. And since I'm already saved, I can't go to hell. So it is kind of the old accusation that have been made against our forefathers that were Baptists that believed in eternal security of, well, then why live righteous? Why live a holy life if you know you're going to heaven? Now, not so shocking to me, a few years later, she confessed she had never been saved. And I thought, oh, that's not too surprising. Uh, Because the Bible teaches us that when a person's been saved, there are fruits. And those fruits are contained to some degree here. But I also want to bring forward the importance or if you have been baptized and you're not living in accordance to a servant's heart or with a servant's heart serving the Lord, I would like you to consider the message this morning and what Paul is teaching us. Now, Paul just finishes in Romans chapter 5 a beautiful truth that he has expounded to us that we actually preached on two weeks ago. It reaches its climax in its conclusion at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But prior to that, I want us to know that Paul is talking about the grand, amazing love of Jesus Christ. And he tells us in the early part, going up to verse 8, he says, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he tells us God's love came to you, not because you were deserving of it, not because you were seeking him, but when you were in the blackness of your sin, that's when Christ was sent into the world to die for our sins and take our penalty. That is the gravity of God's love for us. He continues, and he begins to tell us about where sin comes from in Adam, and yet where eternal life comes from in Jesus Christ. And then he reaches this climax in verse 20, and he says exactly what the song those children were just singing comes from, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so not only does it tell us the magnitude of God's love, but then it tells us the depth of God's love and his forgiveness towards mankind, that there is absolutely nothing that a person could do that Christ could not redeem them from. And so he lays this beautiful template out for all believers to know how much God loves us and how much God has done for us. I would say for a Christian, it is necessary to re- be reminded periodically just how vast the love of God is towards us and how he is abundantly displayed it and how much he has blessed us over and over and over and that those blessings are found in the person of Jesus Christ. It is hard to be a sad, depressed person when you consider the gravity of grace and love that God has for us. The Bible teaches us, exhorts us to think on those things often, that we're to think about the grace of God, that we're to think about the love of God, that we're to think about our future glories in heaven and what awaits us frequently because it is what will cause us to be able to endure the hardness Down here. But then when Paul gets into chapter 6, he pivots. He changes course. It's as if he is setting up and reminding us, this is how much God loves us. And I want to tell you that in order to take that next building block and tell you something else. Before I get to that building block, Paul anticipates where our minds are going to go. He tells us, where our sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The grace of God is always greater than our sins, as the song says. Anticipating what the human mind will conceive, he asks this hypothetical question. He says, "Well, what then? Since God's grace is abundant, why not just keep sinning? Because we could always use, but God's grace is more. And so he anticipates the naysayer going to that place. And I want you to know this morning that if your backup plan is always, you know, I'm going to live this way. I might not always do the right thing, but God's grace is more. God knows the intent of your heart in sinning. And there are distinctly in my mind, two different groups of people. There are often a group of people who they sin regularly, just like we all do, but they live in this constant state of overwhelming guilt. And Satan pushes them down constantly saying, look how bad of a sinner you are. You can never please God. And so it stunts their ability to serve God because they're always feeling guilty about the things that they're doing. They're not doing those things out of malevolence. They're doing them out of their fallen nature. Or in other words, you're a sinner. Therefore, you're going to sin. And Satan will capitalize on the, on the delicate conscience... And have them to live in guilt constantly. And if that's you this morning, if you're a Christian who struggles to serve God because you're always feeling guilty for the things that you've done wrong, recognize that is a dart Satan is using against you to stunt you from being able to effectively serve God. Then there's the flip side of the coin. There's the Christian who says, I've got my license to do what I want. And God will understand because his grace is great. And so they depend upon the abundant love of Christ to justify what they're doing in the moment. And if anyone needs to feel guilty, it's those Christians. It's those Christians who tread upon the grace of God lightly. Don't use your salvation as a means to serve yourself. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Especially, and as I was talking to Marley this morning and we were going through some of the scripture texts, it reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, with your life, your new ambition in verse 9 is that you ought to be pleasing to the Lord. And then in verse 10, he gives Christians this reminder that says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ there is an appointment that all Christians have that the whole world has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and to receive our due for things done in the flesh, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And Paul in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5 is setting a gentle reminder to Christians, be aware of that. Don't be stunted or paralyzed by it, but be aware of it. You've got to appear before God. And so if you're decisively living apart from obedience to Christ as a Christian, don't do that. God will judge you for that. And then he takes it even, in my mind, a step further here because he begins to talk about baptism. And that's really what we want to focus on this morning. All of that was just a prelude to really where we're going with this. Now, the world has distorted the function of ba- or the purpose of baptism and its meaning. And if we're not careful, we can slowly drift into thinking in those similar ways. And what I mean is this, very often now it's looked at as this ceremony, as this thing you do when you're ready to make this big decision, and so you bring all the people with pictures and your family And you get an award or a certificate and it becomes this very ritualistic ceremonial thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with commemorating the day. It's a special day and I think taking pictures and and being excited about it isn't bad. Yet, if that is looked at as only a ceremony and the heart of it is forgotten, then we're stripping God's purpose from the value and importance of what baptism really is. First thing I'll say is baptism is a symbol. There is a reason why we don't sprinkle people to be baptized. And I'm not going to get into that this morning and all the scriptural defense of why it's not sprinkling. But there is literally, when we go to the creek today and we baptize Marley, I want you to recognize that as I take her down and bury her in the water and raise her up again, it is all meant to be a visual representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we see in that symbol. And it's not only that it's a symbol that is afar off, rather, it is a symbol that is personally reflective of what inwardly happened to Sister Marley. She, when she was seeking after God and the guilt of sin was heavy upon her and she was seeking after him and she was calling out to him, God was allowing her to feel the weight of sin and the sorrow and pains of hell upon her heart. She was carrying her load of sin and she had to be crucified with Christ from that. And so she is dying to sin. And then she's buried. And then there is this marvelous, amazing, miraculous thing that takes place that is not natural. Rather, it is supernatural. And that is a resurrection to new life. That happened to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he was the first fruits of them that slept or the first fruits of them that die that he was buried 3 days he rose again and the bible teaches us in 1st corinthians 15 that he is just a the first of many which is to come eventually in the natural resurrection the first thing to you know is that when marley is baptized today it is a symbol so the person who is saying you know i've already been saved I joined the church because I wanted to proclaim that symbol. I made that one proclamation because there's a a second aspect to it. It's also a profession. You're not just saying Christ died, he rose again, that his finished work has been completed in my heart, but you're taking it even a step further and you're professing it to the world. You're wanting the world to know that you believe absolutely in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that a person can have an inward experience in Christ that emulates in the spirit what happened to Jesus Christ in the flesh. You're telling people something. Or in other words, you're putting on the uniform to identify yourself with the people of God. Before I get there, I want to make another point as to what baptism is. Baptism is not only a symbol, this is the part that I think people have lost today. It is a commitment. I'm going to say this, and please take it, try to word it carefully. There's a significant difference between being saved and being saved and baptized. There's a big difference. Now, I want to say, lest anybody be confused... When a person is saved, they are going to heaven, and there's nothing they or anybody else can do about it. When a person is saved and baptized, the baptism part is where the decision comes in. You know, you hear people today use terminology like, I decided to become a Christian. I don't like that, right? It's no different, and we've used the analogy before, many people have, that you don't decide to forgive yourself. God does. Right, So he's the one that makes the decision to make you a Christian, to change your heart. And then he notifies you when that happens. Yet, what is put into our hands is the decision once we have been saved as to what we're going to do with the remainder of our life. And Paul in Romans 5 has told us, Look at the vast depth of the love of God. Now I'm going to pivot and we're going to put the ball into your court. Keep in mind what Christ has done for you. But now, what are you going to do for Christ? Look at, we're going to look here for just a minute in the scriptures that we read today. Look at verse 4. It says this, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Excuse me, let me back up a verse. Know you not that so many of us, as we're baptized, now the King James says, into Jesus Christ. I shouldn't surprise us because Anglicans who believe that baptism is essential for salvation translated this. That's an incorrect translation. It should be baptized unto Jesus Christ. Or in other words, when we're lost... And we're living in sin according to the lusts of our flesh and the pride of life. We are categorized and we are living in and among the world. Seeking the ambitions that the world has for us. And that we have for ourselves. But when we get baptized, we are doing something. We are saying, I am committing to living a life apart from the world. Or in other words, when you decide to become a member of the Lord's church and get baptized, you are committing to God that I am not going to live with the same ambitions the world has. I'm not going to live under the same influences that the world has. And I'm not going to allow myself to fall to the same desires that the world has for me. I have decided to live differently than the world does. Now that's very trying in our age, and the reason is because we are overloaded and inundated with every kind of input possible as to what the world thinks that a a person should live like. We have so many inlets into the world. That's one of the big problems in today's Christianity or with Christians today, is that we refuse to cut off the world. But the Bible teaches us that we need not allow ourselves fall subject to what the world wants us to be like. And when we step out and get baptized, what we're saying is I am committed to separating from the world. And then the next question would arise is this, then what are you joining to? And here he tells us, unto Jesus Christ. We are leaving the team of the world putting on the uniform of Christ, and are deciding to follow him. Now let me say this, and I want to be very gentle and careful how I say this. If you've been saved by God's grace, and you do not want to commit to living as Christ wants you to, it would be wisest not to be baptized. It's not this ceremony we go through just so we can take pictures and get a certificate. It's the most serious and solemn commitment you can make with your life. Because not only are you committing to do it yourself, you're professing to the world that's what you are going to do. You're telling people, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to live according to the standards of God's word. And thus, you give people the right to judge you by the self-professed standard you are saying you're striving to live by. If you never say that, if you never come out and commit yourself to that, then in some sense you have an excuse, right? But if you come out yourself and say, I'm gonna live different, I'm gonna live as Christ wants me to live, and I'm gonna diligently serve him, you gotta hold up on your end of the bargain. The Bible teaches us in the book of James, the principle, it's better to not make a vow and break it than to make or excuse me, it's better to not make a vow than to make a vow and then break it. Being baptized is a serious, sincere vow that you're making. Again, it doesn't mean you're going to be flawless and perfect, but it means that the strivings of your heart and your life is to serve God and to avoid sin. When you get baptized, that's what you're agreeing to. Now, here's what it says in verse five. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness, excuse me, again, I'm a verse off here. Look at verse four. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death or unto death is what that should be in regards to death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Okay, when you see in the New Testament the word walk used in a metaphorical sense, it always means, as far as I've ever seen, your lifestyle. That's what it means. So you're saying, I'm going to live a lifestyle that is different. I'm going to walk. When did that difference start? Notice what he says there. When you got baptized. Because what you're doing is committing to do it. The change has always already been wrought inwardly. And so you should already feel a natural desire and inclination to live different. But when you get baptized is when you're stepping out and you're saying, I am going to walk and live a lifestyle in newness of life. And in the same way that I died like Christ or with Christ, I died to sin. That's why Jesus Christ died is he died for the sins of the world. And when you sought after him and you found him, you died to sin as well. Sin no longer has a grip on you or control of you. You have let go of those things. Thus, now you're walking and raising up and you're walking in a new life or according to a new set of precepts and a lifestyle. Young person here today, that's hard to do. I mean, really, that is super hard to do. And let me say this, it doesn't necessarily get easier when you get older, it just gets more complicated when you get older, because you feel all new dimensions of pressure from different people and from different places, and Satan uses a whole new array of tactics against you, and the more and more you progress in age and in your Christian life, what you're going to find is that the tactics of Satan evolve and adapt according to where you are at. And he uses the world and the lust thereof to tempt us to going back on one of the things he'll use. Nobody else in my church lives this way. Right? That's an easy thing to be tempted by is that you see a group of people and I'm not making an accusation here. All I'm saying is that's what Satan can use is he can cause us to look around at other Christians and say, Well, they don't live according to this standard. Why should I? Because God calls us to and because you committed to it. That's why. Paul here tells us when you're getting baptized, you're making a commitment to Christ. That you are going to live a lifestyle that is different. So be careful. Be careful when you step out from among the world. And you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because then immediately, what should happen? What should happen in your mind is, okay, then how do I need to live? And you should begin the diligent search of the scriptures as to, all right, I've got to live different now. What does that look like? What are the temptations that are going to fall in my way? How am I going to be a new target of Satan? Because here's the thing. If he can get you, someone as a Christian who has professed outwardly that Christ is your Savior and you're going to follow him. If he can tempt you and cause you to fall off the proper path, he can better disgrace Jesus Christ than if a person had never made that profession in the first place. You don't want that. Neither do I. Neither does God. Here's what it says in verse 10. There's a lot of verses I'm skipping here, but I want to look at verse 10. He says this. He reiterates the point. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. This is talking about Jesus Christ. He's saying just as he died to sin, but now he lives. And the purpose of his life is to bring glory to the Father. And he directly connects that to you and I. We have died to sin. Now we are to live a life unto pleasing God. It's vital. Baptism is a commitment. Here's the last thing baptism is that I'm going to cover this morning. Baptism has a function and we've already alluded to it today but I want to read a verse of scripture that is often distorted in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 but really gets at I think the meaning of what baptism is and what it does. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20. In regards to baptism, which, we'll back up to 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, listen to this very closely, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to read the part that sounds a little confusing one more time. It says this, While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto, even, even baptism, doth also now save us. Oh, that sounds weird, doesn't it? You're saved by baptism? The answer is kind of. Or in other words, saved from what? Did the water save Noah and those eight souls from God's wrath? No, the ark did, right? What did the water save them from? well, why did God send the water in the first place? Because the world had grown so wicked that God said, it has repented me that I've even made man. And then the Bible says in verse nine of that chapter, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then God gave him a commandment to build that ark. Here's what this verse is saying. In the same way that water saved Noah and his family from that wicked generation, so also baptism does now save us. The water separated Noah from the wicked world. You know what baptism does? When you come out and you say, I'm going to be baptized, and I am separating from this wicked world unto the people of God. I am joining myself to them. And I'm going to live according to God's precepts and God's laws and God's desire. That baptism... That, in other words, commitment to live according and with the people of God saves us from the wickedness and the sin of this unrighteous world. If you've been baptized and you're living in sin, you know, there's, people make a big deal, and somebody mentioned this during vacation Bible school, people make a big deal about being on the church rolls as if their name in a book is what God uses. ...to determine whether a person's a church member or not. It's not. Right? God has an account in heaven... ...of those people... ...who have been baptized... ...and are desiring with their whole hearts... ...to serve him... ...and striving to do so. God keeps the ultimate record of that. And God will hold accountable... ...those people... ...who have made a profession... ...who have been baptized who have said, I'm going to live apart from the sinful world, but then go right back to the world and live in it. And you can't tell a distinction between the world and that Christian. Let me tell you this morning, and I hate to inform you, you're not part of the Lord's church. According to God's standards, He sets those standards. He keeps the roles of that. A person who commits themselves to serving the Lord and then strives to do so, Those are whom God deems faithful to be a part of his chosen people. Baptism functions as a separation. It separates us. Now what you see today in our politically correct, sometimes very stiff, all well put together Christianity is that People will section them off from their church when they're going through something difficult, when they're experiencing heartbreak, when they're tempted or addicted to sin. And they'll often go back to the world to learn how to cure themselves of it. Friend, you were separated with the people of God for the good and for the bad. And if you're struggling with sin You ought to be glad that you're with the people of God who have been freed from the bondage of sin, who have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to be able to help you and guide you and strengthen you to conquer those things. Don't run back to the world if you're experiencing sorrow or disappointment or pain or all of those things to be cured of the only thing the world can bring. You're separated under the people of God. Baptism today is a symbol. Baptism is a commitment. Baptism is a profession. And the last thing baptism is, is it's a definitive separation from living like the sinful world. You should notice in the life of a Christian when they get baptized the way they live their life from that point forward. And if there's not, to that Christian that is still seeking the world and all the lust thereof, repent and come back. Repent and come back. I'm always curious when somebody joins the church, what part they're going to play now in the church, you know? Like Marley is different than anybody, everybody else in the church. And God has put her, her together as Corinthians tell, tells us as a member in particular, an individual different from everybody else and to impress upon her now that she's living among the people of God, what is her role among the people of God? Well, her first role is to learn and to grow. I've already told her Find, yes, your parents, but there might be a woman in this church that you say, you know what? God's just drawing me to her to learn and to grow and to mature and to cultivate God's gift within me. I don't even know what they are right now, but they're there. And God desires those to blossom so that she can be an actively engaged, contributing member to this body in our attempt to glorify our Father in heaven and we need her to be an active participant from the moment she rises up in the water until the moment that she lays down in that casket, that she would be an actively engaged member to reach this world and to glorify God. And if you're a member of this church, One of the burdens from the very first sermon I preached here, your first Sunday and pastor, I told you four things I had a burden for. And one of those things was that God's people in God's church, in Old Union Church, would find specifically, why am I here? And what function do I play in this church? What is God calling me to serve Him within this body? And God has a role for you. But too often, God's people have not Search for those things and found those things they 've relegated just song leading and Sunday school teaching that those are the only things that people can do when most certainly they are not. God has a robust purpose for old Union church that requires all of the gifts and all of the people that he has here being laid out on a table before God that we can offer them to him together and say God we are all surrendering our lives to you you know who we are you knit us together in our mother's womb and you placed us together that we could be the body of Jesus Christ living on earth that we might go out of these doors and reach people that we would be codependent upon one another to accomplish that purpose and so what we need to is all of God's people who have been baptized into this local body to to recommit themselves or to dedicate themselves to God, whatever I can do to serve my fellow brothers and sisters in this body or to help others become part of this body or to help other churches, independent bodies that might need strengthened and encouraged. God, I committed that day when I was baptized that I was going to serve you and here I am now. It is all before you. I surrendered the day I got saved saved and that's why you saved me and now I surrender my life that I might be a useful uh, person in your service that it is just my reasonable service the bare minimum we could do for God is to give our lives as service to him and what you'll see when a group of people have covenanted together to do that and they truly engage and lay themselves out, that church will have an impact on the world because God will be in that church and isn't that what we want? I think a lot of times people don't see the big deal in joining the church, frankly, because the church isn't doing a lot. Oh, but if we were ministering to the the orphans and the widows, like Hack 6 tells us to do, and we were reaching out to those people on the byways and the highways and compelling them to come in, and we were going to the distraught, and we were going overseas, and we were going to domestic missionaries, and we were going to people who were hurting and in pain and suffering, and there was these small groups of our church who have been burdened to come together to go do all the things according to God's gift that he has disposed to them. If we were going like that, don't you think when a person got saved and they saw how active and vibrant and robust the ministry of the church was, they would say, I want to be a part of that. I want to learn what this person is doing so that I can help them to do that because I have been eager since I was a child to be a part of that. I think so. And so what does it require? Now, surprisingly, I didn't intend to say all that. What does it require of us? For some of us that have lost what the commitment is, recommit yourself to it. Recommit yourself to this church. Wednesday night, 630 You can start. Recommit yourself to this church. You want to be a part of it. You want to help Sister Marley, who is what I believe to be the first of many in the near future young Christians that will be joining our church. You say, you know, I'm going to wait until my child, and then I'm going to try to help my... Don't do that. Don't do that. Commit now. And show by example. You know, sometimes what I do to my kids, and I'm done. A great preacher lies, brother Jonathan Elliott said last night. Sometimes you can't, you can't teach abstract concept to kids, you know. Like if I try to teach them about dedicating themselves to the Lord's work, that's an abstract concept that's hard to grasp as a child. So instead, at this age, I tell them of people. And I can use those people's lives to indicate a broader principle that they'll understand later in life. So I know I brought them up before. I will often use my son's Dr. Collins from Fairview Memorial. A man who has laid down his life in service of the gospel. But right, he's not a preacher. No, he's not a preacher. And to me, that's the best part of the example. God gifted him. God called him, and he's following it. Maybe that's what God will call one of our young kids to do. I've often wondered, he just turned 70, who's going to take his place? Who's going to be the one that contacts all the missionaries abroad and helps them with medical care when they're dying? You know, he was helping Brother Tajima in Japan. He's helping Brother Monty Shoulders in Belize. He's helping Brother Tomalande in Kenya. He's helping Brother Samuel and Brother Paul in Ghana. He's helping... Brother Rick Jones in Jamaica. He's helped preachers up in Alaska. He's helped preachers out in Oregon. His, his footprint is all over. I'm not saying that's everybody's calling. But don't you think if there were a number of examples that we could point to like that, that there would be young people in our church that would say, you know what, there's a path already trod for me. There's a path here. Why have I heard since I've been here so many stories about Margaret Board? Anytime I see her name, everybody just wants to point to it and tell me about her. Every time I'm in the cemetery with somebody, somebody wants to point her out to me. Why? She had a calling and a position in this church. She was a spiritual woman that had an impact on a lot of people. God has a calling for us. That begins at a commitment that we make when we've been baptized into his local body. I pray today that God would inspire you to seek out, why am I here? Why am I a part of this church? I think of our deacons. I caught the guy, a couple of our deacons here today. You know, your job as a deacon is not just to be here. Like, really, and I don't mean that sarcastically whatsoever. But like, you can't just say, "Well, my role as a deacon Well, as, as you all know, deacons have personalities, different personalities, different talents and gifts. And I would say, as your pastor, I look to you all as ones that the church has set aside, leaders in the church, to find what is my gift and calling to serve this church. It falls upon you. And you can't avoid that because you agreed to it. You agreed to become a deacon of this church and to be one that not only... See, because ultimately our job as leaders of the church... Is not to just find our gift and calling and stay right there. Do you want us to do? Help cultivate the gifts in others that they might also find theirs. That's the ultimate purpose of why we've been set aside and given this responsibility and privilege. So I start with you and I ask you that. I plead with you in in that regard. How does God want you to serve this church in a specific capacity? To either edify the body or help people outside of the body. Reach people. And once you have found that, then let's begin to help our members. Especially our young ones. Nothing more tragic. Nothing more tragic in the world than when a, a saved person, join a young person joins the church. Looks around and says, well, what do I do now? So they don't do anything and they hit 18 or 20 and they leave and they never come back. Does that sound familiar? Too familiar, doesn't it? It doesn't have to stay that way. It can change with our very first baptism today. Is devoting ourselves to renewing the commitment that we made when we were baptized. And that's my prayer for us as a church today. I pray God would help us. We need his enabling power. And I recognize that. We can't strive in our own strength to do it. And I hope I've not indicated that at all this morning. We need God's grace and help. But he desires our response. And I hope we'll give that to him.